Hello, and welcome to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast where we're spotlighting our community of researchers, scientists, and thinkers who are helping to imagine and shape our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in this episode, host Marina Gorbis, IFTF ED, talks with prominent MIT economist and author, Daron Asimoglu, about his new book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity which is a fascinating read about the future of artificial intelligence and its impact on jobs and inequality, and about how the choices we make today for developing and implementing AI will be what determines whether or not it will contribute to even greater inequality in the future. Will AI contribute to a loss of jobs, or will it create the tools to empower workers? Stay tuned for an insightful conversation about what might be needed to steer this technology in a direction that enriches our lives and communities. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Duran. Thank you, Marina. Thanks for inviting me. And it's a great pleasure for me to be joining you here. I have to tell you that I've been reading your book intensely for the last week, and it's well underlined. And I have quotes and everything. It's both on Kindle and hardbound. Um, great book. The name is Power and Progress, 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. The other book that I've read before this is Why Nations Fail, which is really another interesting book that I highly recommend. And you co-authored this book with Simon Johnson. I have probably too many questions, but let's start with this. There's a quote in the introduction to the book that I underlined, one of those highlighted quotes. Let's start with that. Machines are not gifts, I'm quoting, descending unimpeded from the skies. They can focus on automation and surveillance to reduce labor costs, or they can create new tasks and empower workers. More broadly, they can generate shared prosperity or relentless inequality, depending on how they're used and where new innovative effort is directed. To me, it's like the summary of the book. It is. It is. You've, you've found the right passage to underline. So let's start with that. What are those choices? The direction of technology and its impacts is something we have a choice over, which is very much what we believe also. But what are those choices and institutional arrangements and probably cultural and ideological elements that sort of define and, and shape how these technologies are diffused, how they're implemented? I think history is full of examples. But if I were to give two quick examples, I would start from the Industrial Revolution, which, of course, is a turning point in recent human history. But if you look at the choices that industrialists made at the early stages from the textile machinery, how it was used, how it was developed, the factory system, the way in which it was organized, they were very much aimed at sidelining labor and controlling labor. The big innovation of the factory system was a huge amount of discipline and almost repression over workers. And during that early phase, which lasted for approximately 100 years, not surprisingly, you don't see workers benefit. In fact, they probably started faring much worse. And when the institutional balance in British society changed, democracy brought broader political voice into the arena, trade unions brought more bargaining from workers, then you see a completely different direction of technology and a completely different distribution of gains from technological change. And if you fast forward 
150 years to today, with digital technologies and especially AI, we are at the beginning of a process that's going to empower a small group of people tremendously, even more than they have become emboldened and enriched. But if you look at the nature of AI technologies, they also have the capability to be quite pro-worker, enrich our capabilities, create new tasks, new things for us, better information. But unfortunately, that's not the way that we're going right now. And I have to say, you take a really broad sweep, 1,000 years, which, by the way, we love because we believe that before you can start thinking about the future, you need to understand the past and the patterns in the past. And as I was reading, I was thinking, all these technologies that we think are so foundational and they made lives better actually did not lead to greater prosperity for the masses. So it's not a great historical lesson that we're seeing. It's like from the plow, better plows, better mills, better ship, better designed ships. They basically, if you look historically, empowered a small and made wealthy a small group of people and impoverished the masses. Is that kind of the lesson of history? It is. And, and you know, I'm generally interested in history. Other works that I've done within the same genre also start from history. But in this instance, there was actually a very good reason for choosing the 1,000-year struggle as the subtitle of the book. Because when I started researching these topics about 10 years ago and presenting them in economics and other academic seminars at first and broader forums later, I was confronted with always, almost always, with the same question when I showed, for example, that digital technologies reduced wages and robots did not create shared prosperity, but all the gains went to capital owners and entrepreneurs. The question was, oh, are you saying this time is different? Because we know from history that in the past, technological improvements have always helped workers and the population at large. And I did not have as sharp an answer to that as I should have had uh, 10 years ago. But looking a little bit more into history provides a very sharp answer. No, this time is no different. History is full of examples of the gains going only to powerful agents and also the struggle over the direction of technology being as intense or even more intense than it is today. So are there any examples in history of when technology was actually implemented and resulted in greater prosperity, either in this country or in other countries? And what are the key sort of determining factors in that? There are many episodes and Actually, to be honest, they may all be related to a phenomenon that started in the second half of the 19th century, that in Britain, that in continental Europe, that in the United States, starting around the same time, and then continuing with starts and stops in the 20th century. But I think two parts of it deserve special emphasis. One, if you look at the three and a half decades or so that followed World War II, those were really remarkable times. In many ways, much of the West industrialized world was democratic, broad participation of different segments of society into the political economy, including labor organizations. There was a lot of automation. So this was a period that was not no automation, no major industrial technologies that changed the organization of production. On the contrary, automation was very rapid. 
But at the same time, you had other technologies that empowered workers, increased their productivity, created new tasks for them. And as a result, you have a broadly shared pattern of prosperity across almost all of the industrialized world. You have very rapid wage growth, and it's very equal across different demographic groups. In the United States, for example, workers with high school degree are experiencing even faster growth than workers with college degree up to until the late 1970s, a very different picture than what we are seeing today. Another period that's really noteworthy, and let me again give the example from the United States, but you can see the same thing in the UK as well, is the second half of the 19th century when industrial technologies are trying to make workers more productive. In the United States, especially, it's very sharp because there's a general perception among entrepreneurs and innovators that there aren't enough skilled artisans to make industrial processes as they were organized in the in the 100 years before then viable in the United States. So many entrepreneurs are trying to find ways of making unskilled labor more productive. And that's the origin of the interchangeable parts, which then turns into the modern factory system and things like Ford's modern company is an outgrowth of these. And They are a brilliant combination of automation while at the same time increasing worker technical tasks, design tasks, maintenance, and use of information, both in white color and blue color tasks. So you see, again, not everything is perfect. In the first half of the 20th century in the United States, for example, there is often a struggle between capital and labor that's not always friendly. But broadly speaking, you're seeing wages increase during this period. And Some of it had to do with the whole labor organizing and the power of labor movement having impact and having and participating. And I think you cite examples actually of Germany and Sweden where there was a tripartite collaboration and compact social compact, which I think we had in those years. Absolutely. It was a struggle in the United States. It wasn't the status quo. For example, the auto industry, which was at the forefront of both automation and new tasks, was also pretty much a leader in the struggles between capital and labor. So there were a number of strikes and some strike breaking by employers, including Ford, in order to establish the ground rules. But I think it is very natural for me to think that some sort of labor organization is key. You cannot have the best way of using labor, the best way of organizing production, just being the decision of employers. I think it has to have some element of communication between labor and capital. And in the case of the examples that you mentioned, which we discuss in the book, I see a number of very distinctive elements that are super important. In the Nordic countries, for example, you have a broadly cooperative or corporatist approach it it has pluses and minuses, but the big plus here is that employers and unions do not see each other as mortal enemies. And that leads to much better coordination, much better co- uh, cooperation. And also it encourages the development of technology in a way that doesn't just sideline labor. In Germany, some of that role is being played by work council, worker councils that are not directly negotiating on wages, but have a role in terms of communication, enable, for example, labor representatives to sit on board so that they are in the loop when decisions about introduction of robots or reorganization of the factory floor are being taken. And that creates much more cooperative, communicative environment. And it is actually very interesting. When you look at 
U.S. companies, when they introduce robots, what they do is that they lay off the blue-collar workers. When German companies, for example, automakers introduce robots, they take the uh, blue-collar workers and they train them to be uh, technicians. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is this is all embedded in the training system. So actually the workers are highly skilled and have relevant expertise for the company. So the company doesn't want to let them go. Managers don't feel under as much short-term cost-cutting pressure. That might help. And then finally, I think the general power of labor organization means that there are reasons for companies to try to find a way of making these workers more productive rather than just sidelining them. So I think organization of production, the relationship between labor and management, these are always important in how technology is used. Yeah. So let's talk about today and all the conversations about AI. And uh, again, uh, there are so many forecasts from very credible people about AI being the worst thing in these very dark scenarios. And on the other side, like very positive scenarios. So what are you seeing in these conversations? And I'm particularly interested, you talk about the two really important powers, the power of persuasion and the power of coercion. So let's talk about that. And what do you see happening? Look, I think as a background, AI is not the only technology that matters, but it's one that's going to have very transformative defining effects on production, on information data, on surveillance, and on workers in the next few decades. So choices we make about AI are very important. It is equally central then, have a broader understanding about who's going to make those choices. And right now, the general ideological environment in the United States, general political climate in the United States, leads us down to a path where a handful of entrepreneurs and engineers are going to make all of these choices. And that's a very scary prospect at some level, because we have such sweeping effects from these technologies, and only a very small privileged group of people are going to have a say on it. Where does that come from? Is it that Mark Zuckerberg controls tanks or nuclear weapons? Is it because Sam Altman has a special army? No, it's because they have tremendous persuasion power. They have actually convinced voters, politicians, that their expertise is so unique and their genius is so powerful that they should be enabled to make key decisions. Now, in the background, we have all of this concern about AI. A very large fraction of the U.S. public says they are concerned about AI. But then ask them the question differently, and there's a lot of excitement about AI as well. And if you look at it, the reason for this is because there we have this bipolar or false dichotomy debate in the U.S. press, which sort of then spills over to the international one, which is either you are an unqualified optimist and all problems are going to be solved and we're going to be so incredibly fortunate to have had AI tools, thanks to those tech billionaires, or killer robots are coming and there's nothing we can do, we are all doomed. And both of these polls, they have a very powerful pacifying effect. They abrogate us of the responsibility to actually have a say about how to use these tools. And that is the key. I don't think killer robots are coming. I don't think artificial general intelligence is coming. And I definitely don't think that left to its own devices, 
Sam Altman, Elon Musk, and Mark Zuckerberg are going to make the right choices for us. So we need to have a debate about how set of technologies are being developed, how they're being designed, who is making those choices, for whose benefits, how they're going to affect work, inequality, wages, market structure. Those are very mundane questions, the questions in which everybody can have a say, everybody can have an opinion. We don't need to be a PhD in computer science to have an opinion about whether you should be more monitored and all of your data be collected. You don't need to be a PhD in math to say that there should be some limits in how large language models expropriate the data of creative artists, for example. So those are debates that we can have, but we first need to leave this false dichotomy of AI as the best technology ever and AI as the killer robots version. I, I do think that what we're suffering from is, first of all, what you're saying is you don't understand the technology, so you can't participate in this conversation. And there is a gap among our policy makers and people who are involved in the policy process and people who are developing technologies. And the other thing is that a lot of times, as these technologies and applications go into areas where, where we don't have laws and we don't have regulations, and by the time we catch up, with the negative impacts, it's too late. It's, oh, we've created this, we can't go back. You know, it's I think that's, that's absolutely correct. I think the person who really captured the essence of that is Shoshana Zuboff in, uh, in her wonderful book, where, you know, part of the value of the tech companies comes from regulation arbitrage. They are able to break the rules and avoid regulation that applies to others and then ex post negotiate to justify that rule breaking, I think both Google and Facebook have very and Uber, like and Uber way. absolutely have very much engaged in this type of regulation arbitrage. And AI is raising the stakes in that. So imagine, for instance, AI suddenly can start giving medical advice. If we let AI do that without any regulatory structure, that's a huge regulatory arbitrage because if you're going to give advice as a human, you need to have years of education, certification, uh, lots of way of uh, checking your knowledge and uh, oversight, not for the AI system. I, I am very excited about AI becoming an input into healthcare. There are ways in which, for example, nurses can become much more empowered and productive with AI, but it needs to happen within a regulatory structure, not as a way of arbitraging regulation. Yeah. Let's talk about in your own world, in education. I, there are all these articles about now students submitting their essays using ChatGPT. There was just a big article in the New York Times about that. How do you deal with that in the education sphere? I think the education is another example where we can see both the best and the worst of AI. Let me start from the best, and then unfortunately I'll come to the worst, which is much more much closer to the truth. I think AI's capability for creating new tasks and significant improvements in productivity are very visible in education. Our current education system does not work for people who fall behind, people from low socioeconomic backgrounds, because they are having difficulty with the curriculum and there isn't a way of understanding exactly how they're having difficulty or creating personalized teaching. Now with AI tools, you can do that. You would need to hire more teachers and train teachers better, but teachers in real time can identify from questions, lack of questions, body language, visual cues, the note-taking patterns of students, which subset 
of students is having trouble with what material in what way, and they can then provide more personalized teaching. It's a much more cost-effective form of individualized education programs, which are you know prohibitively costly. That's a tremendous opportunity, and I think it could revolutionize U.S. middle school, high school education. But right now, no technologies are being developed there, even though what I've just described is well within the frontier. Why not? Because schools don't have a demand for it, and the tech industry is not interested in that. You can augment that with much better possibilities for students themselves accessing reliable information, but in a way that does not translate into cheating. Again, that could actually be quite a productive way. But right now, I think what we are seeing is two other polls that are much more pernicious. One is you have a big industry push towards automated testing, automated grading, automated teaching, which will sideline teachers rather than empower them. And I think it's not going to work because this is what Pascual Restrepo and I have called so-so automation. You get rid of labor, but you don't actually really introduce productivity improvements. I think that's a big problem. Second, like going into Whole Foods today and they installed all these automated things. Absolutely. absolutely. Tons of people I, around helping people and everybody's upset and frustrated. Absolutely. I think self-checkout kiosks or automated customer service that never works, they are examples of social automation. And so I think that's the path that the industry is pushing and venture capital money is going into that. The other thing is that we talked about regulation arbitrage. I think ChatGPT is also going to provide homework arbitrage for students. Students who are early or are better at prompt engineering are going to be able to generate homeworks or even exam cheating opportunities before regulations and norms adjust that would give them a leg up in the process, but of course, uh, against their own ability to learn. So I think ChatGPT's rollout was highly irresponsible before any regulation or norms were in place. It was maximizing hype and maximizing adoption, and it became the fastest spreading technology in human history. So far as I know, what benefits do we have to show for it? Again, don't get me wrong. I think generative AI has great capabilities, but it has to be developed in a pro-human, pro-worker, pro-citizen direction and within a regulatory environment, within so, the right set of how, Take me to that. Like you said, before they were rolled out, they should have been consideration and, and voices of other people. So what would it have looked like? These companies been developing this technology for a while, right? Where do you get that participation and multiple voices? Should they be talking and having councils, advisories? Like, where does this happen? Absolutely. I think when you go to the institutional part, you need to have a much greater set of voices, both in the regulatory scheme. The U.S. Senate shouldn't just talk to Elon Musk and Sam Altman, but they should talk to a labor organization, civil society organization, pro-democracy group. These firms themselves should do that, but also they look at their objectives. I think Google actually had the lead in these large language models, and for once it actually acted responsibly. Google did not want to release it to the public. What they were trying to do was train the model so as to incorporate it into the, their own applications, which I think is a much more responsible way of doing it. And if you want to roll out to the public, you first need to do some pilots. For example, if you roll out the way that OpenAI did, all students are going to have access to it. So is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. Nobody knows. Isn't that irresponsible? So one thing you could do is why the rush? In 100 years' time, will people say, oh, my goodness, that was disaster. ChatGPT was released in November instead of being released in October. What a horrible one-month delay. You will never say that. Right. So instead, you do first pilots. So you release it to 
a couple of schools and see how students use it. If they're using it in the wrong way, then you need to impose, improve the regulations. See how malintentioned actors are using it for misinformation and deep fakes. And then you try to provide guardrails before it becomes widely adopted. So none of that took place. As I was reading the book, one, one thing that kind of bothered me a little bit was, so this whole notion that we should direct AI to create new tasks for, for humans and empower humans and all of those things. And I'm thinking we're working more than ever before, particularly here in the United States. Wouldn't it be great if actually we could work less and instead of, and also what kind of tasks? We know that when technologies enter a lot of these technologies, they they standardize tasks, make them more boring for people, more repetitive and routine, all kinds of other things. So what about that? Should we forget the whole notion that actually maybe the purpose of our lives is not to do more tasks and do more work, but it's to actually do a little less and spend more time with our families and our communities and other things. And obviously without foregoing the economic benefits and other, is that dream pretty much dead? Look, I know I don't think so, but I think there's a big difference. First of all, my read of the evidence is that there's a big difference when workers become productive and well-off and choose to take more leisure versus their skills become redundant and they are forced to reduce their hours. In the United States, educated people are working more and more. But if you look at, for example, college uh, non-college males, their labor port participation is at an all-time low. Right. And Moreover, yes, absolutely. I think one big problem in the United States is that we are becoming less part of our community. But if you lose your job, that doesn't create more room for you to become part of the community. It makes it much harder for you to become part of the community. So all the evidence from economic sociology and economics suggests that people who lose their jobs, they become less attached to their community. They become less positive members of their community. So I think the trick here is to create greater opportunities. and with those opportunities, with better income, then people can make their own choices. Today, today, for example, we have some people with low education who are working many hours because they are in dead-end jobs and they can't make ends meet. So the solution to that is not to say, well, you have to go part-time, but the solution to that is to provide them the technologies and the education so that they can earn more and that they can make choices about how to use their time. So I think it's empowering if we create the right set of human tasks together with machines that can do boring things, physically demanding things. So one positive thing from automation, actually, by the way, Marina, I should say, is it's destroyed a lot of jobs, but it's also made workplaces much more safe because robots and heavy machinery do some of the most dangerous tasks. I welcome that. But together with that, we want more meaningful jobs for the workers who used to do those dangerous tasks. So it's not like completely eliminate them, but create new jobs for them. Which is interesting because if you look at what's happening at Amazon warehouses that are highly automated, the rate of injuries is quite high, much higher know. than in other kinds of warehouses. So we're obviously not doing that. I have a last question for you, and thank you so much for your time. First, it's it's interesting. When I, after I read your book, I went back and I read your bio, and I was like, "Oh my God, he's an economist." That book is not written. I didn't. I thought it was sociologist 
or historian of, and I, I forgot that you're actually a professor of economics. So that to me is interesting that uh, I don't think of economists as writing these institutional historical books, although I may be completely wrong. But also, where do you see your role? Because we're all, what's our role in that sort of persuasion and that sort of battle to make the right choices? Where do you see yourself? I'm an economist, and I'm proud to be an economist, but I am an institutional economist, meaning that I've always taken institutions, political power, and broader context of technology into account in my work. And I think once we do that, we have a broader understanding of economic forces, because I think economic forces are very important, but they don't exist in isolation, nor are they the all determining factors, like, for example, political sociologists such as the modernization theorists thought it at some point. No, I think economic forces themselves are shaped by political choices, by ideology, by ideas. And, and we have to recognize that. And I think the broader institutional context is clear and very important there. And once we recognize that, we see that the choices we make are so important that the issue of social responsibility comes to the forefront. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marina. This was a great conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Doing your work. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting IFTF.org. Until next time.